Hi, it's John here. Over the last year, the calls for Black inclusion across society reached a remarkable pitch. And while we saw some remarkable change, it wasn't enough. One sector that was particularly challenged was tech. Not just from a representation point of view, but in terms of how technology both drove and stifled progress. One reason the murder of George Floyd shook the world the way it did was technology. Passersby were able to live stream police brutality for the whole planet to watch. That wasn't possible a decade ago. And yet those same platforms that allow us to listen to the world can also silence too many voices. The worst thing that someone ever said to me was that no one would take me seriously because I was trying to help Black people. And no one would take me seriously because I was Black, because I was young, because I was a woman. That's Tamar Huggins-Grant. She's the founder and executive director of TechSpark Canada. We'll hear more from her later on. But before we get going, I want to put some key questions to you. How can Black men and women, and especially youth, see a compelling future in tech? whether it's in a big company or starting their own? How can we ensure tech doesn't appropriate black culture? How can we ensure innovation is driven by and accountable to all parts of our society? And what are you doing to ensure the change we're in the midst of is positive? It's Black History Month, and yes, that's an opportunity to honor the past, but it's also an opportunity to look ahead, to think deeply about how to ensure A good share of what some people call the fourth industrial revolution is Black-led. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm John Stackhouse. In order to tackle these big issues, I'm honored to have Michael Carter here as my co-host. Michael is Global Head of Technology Investment Banking at RBC Capital Markets in New York. He's a 25-year veteran of Wall Street with leadership stints at Barclays and Lehman Brothers, and he serves on a range of boards encompassing both tech and leadership opportunities for young people, including the Executive Leadership Council, which is a major body in the U.S. of Black business leaders. Michael thought deeply about many of these issues for much of his life, and it's always a pleasure to speak with him. Michael, welcome to Disruptors. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Michael, the last time you and I spoke on a podcast was last summer, soon after the murder of George Floyd. Sometimes that feels like last week. Sometimes it feels like a decade ago. And I wonder when you look back over the last six or eight months, what do you think has changed in the larger conversation around Black issues? Well, I think one thing that has definitely changed is that people are more engaged. I think business leaders are making some progress in creating equitable um, work environments. It certainly seems there is uh, definitely more interest in doing that and that you have we have all witnessed uh, many more investments in trying to get progress uh, or moving toward progress. The other area that I see fairly substantial movement is uh, rethinking leadership and what kind of emotional intelligence is required to understand employees and where they are and where folks need to be as a leader around big issues that are impacting society. I think we all know that the millennial generation 
a, a very large part of millennials make decisions about whether they're going to work for a company or not. I think the number was, you know, I saw something in Washington Post about 83% of Gen Zs, as an example, consider what the commitment is to diversity before they join a company. I think the other area is the commitment to being or allowing employees to be more human at work and to bring their whole selves. I'm not sure we've met the frontier yet on that on that point, John, but I think certainly there seems to be a greater embrace of the idea. I think the notion of having more diverse teams for innovation, that concept has been out there for a while, but I think we're seeing a greater commitment to that as people prioritize change. And then lastly, a greater emphasis on focusing on the gaps, both in hiring and pay, and to some degree position, although we haven't seen huge movements there. So that's where I would see some of the conversations have moved uh, in that direction. And, and I think there's been some progress. I try to think of tech as both a sector and a platform. It's a sector like any sector employs lots of people, uh, produces great companies, big companies, uh, um, but it's also a platform on which pretty much the whole economy and society now operates. It's, it creates the operating system of our communities as well as our organizations and individual lives. As I've been reflecting on tech over the last six or eight months, I've been trying to appreciate the differences in, in progress between tech as a sector and tech as a platform. And there's lots of talk about what big tech especially is doing as a sector, especially on the employment and leadership front. You know, there's been some bold uh, ambitions uh, and reality may be a little bit different. Uh, but as a platform, I don't think we've been adequately addressing the hidden biases of, uh, of tech. Uh, I don't think we understand them. What have you been learning over the last while in terms of tech as a platform and its role in the diversity conversation across society? Well, I don't think tech in particular big tech has until recently prioritized change in regards to uh, the voices that are heard on these platforms and even the intention of moving things toward uh, a more equitable society, if you will. But I, I think, as I said earlier, the conversations have begun to take on a slightly different tone. You see it from the top, whether it's Microsoft, you see it from uh, Google and, and Apple, et cetera, where there's a greater commitment toward using their platform for some of that change. And so I think that's number one, is a greater effort to prioritize change. Because uh, you're certainly not going to get it if you don't prioritize it. The thing that tech has not really figured out, though, because if you look at the results, there hasn't been a substantial change in the results. I still believe there's about, uh, you know, Black Americans, as an example, represent 14% of uh, the economy. And most tech companies have have seen numbers range from less than five to uh, maybe less than seven, depending on what you're looking at in tech. And so there hasn't been a huge movement in regards to the outcomes in terms of employment, in terms of even you know senior management, the amount of uh, venture capital that is going into Black and other minority-owned businesses. But again, the prioritization around doing more is where I see 
tech moving to. What I'd like to see in not so much the technology itself, John, I think technology itself is important, but what I, I think the since tech is one of the higher paying employment sectors, it would be good to see big tech in particular begin to cultivate places that black talent exists. You know, for a very, very long time, if you think about where a lot of the technology centers are, uh, let's take, take Silicon Valley for one, it's sort of come to Silicon Valley and, you know, you can get involved in some really creative and interesting things. Well, you know, most black Americans live east of the Mississippi. <laughs> and so perhaps more thought should go into going where the talent is, as opposed to pronouncements about what could happen if the talent came. And so I think of areas like Atlanta, obviously, which is a very large tech entrepreneurship hub. It's an entrepreneurship hub for black talent. That's just now beginning to see you know, the kind of rapid development that I would expect from technology companies that were truly prioritizing growth and change, particularly as it relates to black employment. We are seeing more engagement in Miami, as an example. There's been quite a few announcements, which I think is both good for the black community, but definitely for the Latino community as well. So I, I think that's, a, that's where I'd like to see more. That's where innovation, higher uh, employment, greater wealth could be built in the communities. And then that kind of builds upon itself and change begets change at that point in time. But first, you got to go with an intention to where the talent is so that you can start that train moving. That's a really interesting idea, Michael, to take opportunity to where people are rather than expect you know market forces to draw them to the opportunity. But it's, you know, it's more than creating a Google office in Miami. As you know, uh, there's a whole ecosystem that needs to be built, including uh, research centers, uh, great uh, learning centers, universities, venture capital, and, and customers. That's in, in some ways why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. How do you create that kind of ecosystem in, a, in Atlanta or Miami or here in Toronto or let's say Montreal? Well, first of all, I think we've learned that nearly 60%, I think it's a little short of that, of, of U.S. citizens, as an example, can work remotely. And so the pandemic, you know, suggests that geography is not necessarily the challenge, okay, for creating the type of centers that we're talking about. I mean, we've now been able to advance vaccines, you know, within two years. I think we can figure out how to advance technology by using remote capability and, and other technologies to involve people and to incorporate more activity outside of Silicon Valley. But to be very specific with uh, what you were saying in regards to more of the physical side uh, of infrastructure and creating sort of that DNA of creativity and innovation, which I think is really what Silicon Valley is about. I mean, to some extent, Silicon Valley is less of a place than it is sort of a, a, an ecosystem or an idea of, of how innovation uh, gets permeated with, throughout the, the economy. Geography should not be a barrier for expanding you know, the tech ethos. It, it should not be a barrier for uh, moving into geographies where you find greater African-American talent, uh, as an example. I, I actually believe that the pandemic, uh, for all of the 
horrible things that the pandemic has has brought upon us. I do believe that it has taught us all that we can live in other places and still offer up great opportunity and innovation. And I think that's great for the Black community since the majority of the Black community does live east of the Mississippi. Michael, I love that idea of thinking beyond geography and that concept of expanding the tech ethos, whatever the barriers may be. It's not unlike what Tamar Huggins-Grant, who we heard from at the start of the episode, has been trying to do since she founded TechSpark Canada in 2015. My focus was really about how can we get students of color, how can we get young girls involved in technology at a younger age? How can we present, you know, coding and UX design, robotics, AI, VR, gaming to them in a space that's that's fun, but that's also intentional in the sense that we are giving them opportunities and opening up their minds to thinking, hey, you know what? I can be a developer, I can, you know, be a coder, I can be a game developer, I can be anything. I really wanted young people to see reflections of themselves in the space. And so we worked really hard to bring educators and and technical mentors that look like and come from the, the communities that we serve. It's not about excluding others because of race, it's about making those who have felt excluded because of race feel included in a space that has excluded them for so long. That is that is what I'm here to do, is to make the tech sector equitable. It's not going to be a comfortable journey. It hasn't been comfortable. And that's fine, because whenever we expect change, there has to be some level of discomfort. Coming up, we'll welcome another voice to the conversation a man on a mission to promote diversity in tech. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm John Stackhouse. What in the world is going on when it comes to disruption? And what does it mean for you? That's what we try to tackle in every episode. We break things down to the bottom line so that you can respond quickly to a quickly changing world. Listen back to our episode about esports to get truly game-changing insights. And while you're at it, subscribe so that you don't miss out on our upcoming two-part series on creativity as a key tool in business. And we want to hear from you about topics you want to hear about. So please email us at disruptors at rbc.com. Michael Carter from RBC Capital Markets in the U.S. is my co-host today. Michael, let's bring Dax De Silva into this. He's the CEO of Lightspeed, a terrific Montreal company, which sets up seamless retail point-of-sale systems using cloud technology. The company has more than 1,000 employees in offices around the world, and Lightspeed's clientele now spans 100 countries. Dax, welcome back to Disruptors. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. It's always great to speak to you about tech as well as diversity and inclusion because you are such a leader in so many conversations uh, and doing really interesting things at Lightspeed as an employer. And you've also got an incredible background on your own. And we really wanted you to be part of this conversation because of the stand you took on Black Lives Matter last year. We're keen to get your thoughts on how things have evolved since then, especially with respect to representation. 
in tech. But maybe, Dax, we can start with your own story. Your, your family is, I believe, South Asian and immigrated to Canada from Uganda in East Africa. Was there one specific thing that sparked your interest in diversity, particularly when it comes to Black representation in tech? Yes, uh, as you mentioned, South Asian background. Also, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community, so there's there's some intersectionality with my own personal identity. The origins of of, of the company Lightspeed, you know, uh, a lot of our original team were all members of the LGBTQ community. So Lightspeed has has roots in believing that our differences can really be a teacher. Being a member of uh, of the BIPOC community, also, it's important that we're an engaged company in in these communities because. You know, at 115,000 uh, customers all around the world that are that are retail and hospitality, diversity is represented in our customer base, and that should be reflected in our company, and uh, should be reflected in how we operate and how we uh, envision the company growing. Can you tell us a bit, uh, Dax, about how diversity has helped you through the crisis? Because when this hit, you know, I remember hearing people asking questions about all sorts of firms, but uh, you know, Lightspeed seemed deeply challenged, <laughs> given that you are. You know, principally dealing with a lot of retailers and, and restaurateurs who are clobbered by this, and yet you've you've uh, you've excelled mm-hmm. through the crisis. You're growing incredibly internationally. What role did diversity and inclusion play in your transition strategically through the past year? Yeah, I think it has had some intersections with how we've been able to weather this pandemic. You know, around the around the same time as the pandemic set in. We did do a diversity and inclusion survey across the company, and we began a new way of communicating with the company because everybody was working virtually and, and working remote. You know, some of the things that really struck me as we looked at the statistics in the company was that 83% of lightspeeders felt that they could be their authentic selves in the workplace. You know, nine out of 10 felt comfortable talking about their culture and background with their, with their colleagues, and nearly 17% identified as LGBTQ plus globally. And as I spoke to, to, to many employees across the company, kind of surprised by some of these, these numbers, I realized a lot of people worked at Lightspeed because of what it believed in, what it represented, what it stood for, for them. Michael, jump into the conversation because you, you, you deal with entrepreneurs all over the map. Uh, and I'm curious what kind of conversations or how your conversations have changed with those entrepreneurs and leaders like Dax over the last year. Well, first of all, just... Uh... Congratulations to Dax and just all the success that uh, he and, and Lightspeed have had. And you know, you are you are a hero, not just in Canada. You're a hero, period. So uh, thank you. I, I guess one of the things that uh, I see is that entrepreneurs like Dax are leading the charge. They're closer to their people, uh, as you just heard. Dax has a pretty good sense of what to do in a very authentic way, and true to all entrepreneurism uh, and what entrepreneurs do, they get it done by acting. If it's the right thing to do, they do it. The second thing is, and we talked about this earlier, is just prioritizing change and embracing it. I think people like Dax have the uh, opportunity and the luxury to be close to the center of change every day and are not afraid of it. But one of the things I would ask, you seem to have figured out a formula that uh, that works, and you've obviously embraced uh, diversity for so many reasons, all the reasons you mentioned. But it seems like tech overall still struggles. The numbers are just still incredibly low when it comes to Black and Latino in particular, which together are uh, 28 to 30% in the U.S. I'm not sure what it is exactly in Canada, but 
What, what do you think really contributes to that? Why is it still so difficult for many tech companies to really get their arms around this? And what would you say to them, to CEOs, about trying to, uh, to change the equation? You know, I think we have an interesting perspective because our last two acquisitions were, you know, acquisitions 10 and 11 for Lightspeed. So we've brought a lot of smaller tech companies that uh, maybe grew with a very different perspective and different ethos. And there's maybe less diversity in some of the the acquired companies. Uh, But I mean, all of them have believed in the vision uh, and the value of diversity and inclusion. Uh, we have integrated companies where we've had to introduce, I think, new ways of how you interview for new employees, how we uh, roll out unconscious bias training across the company so that we do bring more diversity into those parts of, of the company. So I think it's not something that uh, that happens automatically, and it's not something that uh, just continues automatically either. As we continue our journey, we are continuously having to reflect on, are we living up to our ideals? You know, when George Floyd happened, I made statements immediately. It was such a visceral reaction for me. But what was the company going to do? What are the abilities of your company, your tech company? What can it offer to some of these communities so that it starts to invite people into the conversation? Uh, And you are a brand, a tech brand that starts attracting employees uh, or attracting candidates Uh, And your interview process and your circle of interviewing becomes larger and larger. And then you actually change the composition of the company. And that's ultimately so enriching. So that's, I think, those are some of the steps that have to be contemplated. And it's a journey. And it's something that is almost never completed. It's a a drive towards more representation. And and then once, once you have the representation, you have to actually create the seats at the table where the decisions are made. That's ultra important, too, because that's also how, how material change happens. It's interesting that you say that. One of my favorite quotes is uh, Shirley Chisholm, who said, uh, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think you, uh, you, just, uh, you just stated that, that uh, quite clearly. Dax, I love how you're trying to avoid committee culture and uh, wish you well on that, <laughs> on that journey. But as tech companies grow, uh, it must become harder to maintain the culture uh, especially of uh, a culture built on diversity and inclusion. What have you learned uh, through Lightspeed's rapid growth in terms of uh, protecting, but maybe even developing your culture through uh, through growth? So company culture and tone uh, certainly comes from the top. As a leader, I think you have to, you know, I know, I know a lot of a lot of companies have a chief diversity officer. That has to be, I think, you uh, first and foremost. You know, you could have a team and a committee, and we're building out a committee that represents people from around the world since we've we become so global. But uh, you have to embody, and you have to you have to be watchful for things that are happening throughout the company and opportunities for going deeper. I, I do think that the buck stops with uh, you know with the CEO. A true leader creates leaders, right? So you create leaders that believe in this as much as you do. You create diversity in your in your leadership team and in your board. You you set a standard that people throughout the company try to work towards, and then you have to be open to hearing that you're not living up to that standard when you're not. That's a culture of listening and a culture of uh, accessibility that has to also be built so that you can keep the standard that you've uh, that you, that you're aspiring for. Michael, you, you deal with a range of companies, and I'm curious what you've learned and seen from the more successful ones addressing these issues over the past year. Folks have taken different paths, if you will, around the subject of BLM, of diversity in general. You know, some have uh, resorted to, you know, investing in the community through grants and other means of, of participation. Many of them have 
really made a, uh, a, a real effort by bringing a few more folding chairs, if you will, to the table. Not as many as probably is needed for sure. Uh, you know, if you look at the broader universe of companies, you know, we're down to one black CEO of a Fortune 500 company, uh, which um, tells you a lot about where we're going from the leadership perspective. The middle management piece has uh, seemingly has broadened, and we see a lot of the companies really expanding aggressively there. I know Microsoft has put a five-year plan together to nearly double the number of diverse participants in senior positions and, and in the company. And those are all very big pronouncements. What we haven't seen as much is more of uh, kind of closing the wealth gap. I think the companies that are really investing with a longer-term mindset have really begun to look at how do we participate in closing the gap. I think McKinsey said that by 2028, you know, it's going to cost a trillion to a trillion five to deal with the uh, ever-widening gap between black and, and, and white in this country. And so being able to be a participant there, whether it's, uh, I know SoftBank has a has a $100 million fund. Other companies, uh, PayPal is investing in black and brown businesses as well. Uh, I think all of that is a, a very good good uh, start. And it's, it's smart to do because at the end of the day, if you have wealth, you can sustain some of the problems that we had, we've, we've seen through the pandemic, where you started with, you know, 59% of, of black owned businesses were already struggling. And that was before the pandemic. You, I can only imagine what the final number is going to be when we do the tally this year about how many have survived. And so without some wealth, you're basically going from hand to mouth or you just go completely out of business. And so I think that recognition uh, by some of these companies, I think, has been huge. But we need a lot more because a trillion dollars is a huge gap and it's not going to be closed overnight. Dax, how, how are you thinking about the investment challenge? Michael and I were talking earlier about the need for a lot more investment capital for black entrepreneurs. A lot has been committed or pledged over the last year, but it remains insufficient. Uh, you've raised a lot of money over your, your career. Maybe share some insights into the challenges you've faced at Lightspeed and how you've overcome them, but also what challenges may lay ahead for others. Yeah, I think our tech ecosystem is um, is rapidly developing in Canada. I think there's lots of opportunities for there to be, you know, funds uh, uh, that are sub funds of bigger funds. Now that we're at the level that uh, that we're at, you know, I think that there's more development to go. We're, we're we're not Silicon Valley yet, but I think that what's interesting about Canada is that there's no denying that systemic racism exists in the country. But at the same time, we do have some wins on diversity and inclusion. And I think that we can be a model. And I think it should start with things like investing in diverse communities. That's a place where we could really shine. Michael, what do you think we're, we're missing that uh, maybe we can take on across the tech ecosystem in the year or years ahead? Well, I do believe the pandemic has created an opportunity to expand participation in technology employment and also perhaps in entrepreneurism itself by recognizing that geography is not a barrier and we can invest where the talent is. I'm actually quite excited about the opportunity to do more for more because not every uh, one is or should be uh, in tech associated with just Silicon Valley. I think DAX is a is a, is a great proof that Silicon Valley uh, does not have a lock on innovation and uh, great minds. 
you know, there is a lot of places that can take more investment. And I think it's a great way for us to close that wealth gap and also to expand on, you know, really creating innovation because talent does breed innovation and uh, we need to be where the talent is. And uh, I think that's quite exciting. As we move towards close, I wonder what advice you both might have for Black entrepreneurs who are listening, uh, as well as their allies, uh, whether they be uh, employees, business partners, investors, uh, or neighbors, uh, what they might be thinking about as they think towards the economic recovery and the opportunities that will emerge in the months and years ahead. I think that entrepreneurs, especially, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that are in in racial minorities or um, gender diverse, you know, minorities have a real opportunity in in the new economy. There's going to be completely new business models, completely new ways of approaching business. That is something that we're seeing as we see reopenings happening around the world, you know, in countries like, uh, like Australia, for example. It would be an amazing uh, moment to capitalize on these opportunities for fresh thinking uh, and to bring the value that each one of those communities can bring in a, in such a unique way. I think this is the time. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And and I, I do think, at least from the American standpoint, I would say that I look forward to seeing more African-American businesses stretch the imagination of the possibility of, of, of where they can pursue business opportunities right now. Only five industries represent uh, most of the employment uh, that uh, Black Americans are are, are a part of. I mean, 74 percent of Black women and 62 percent of Black uh, male owners are only in five industries. Uh, Nothing wrong with those businesses. They're important. But there are so many other businesses as well that we have the right to and we have the talent. And especially on the back of a more digital economy, it's open to us. And what I'd like to encourage others is is that that's an opportunity to invest. Uh, Minority businesses do quite well. The statistics are quite supportive of returns. So I think that those two converging ideas can create some uh, really unique opportunities and just bend the curve. Again, I'm very focused on that wealth gap. And I think this is another opportunity to uh, close that gap as well. We're still in the middle of the pandemic, of course, and that's probably first and foremost on people's minds. I suppose there's a risk that we forget about these challenges, or at least that they uh, fall down the list of priorities. How do we keep the challenges that the world seemed to come to an awareness of last summer? How do we maintain that in the front of our minds? I think that we, we need to keep our focus on justice, economic justice, as it pertains to racial justice. Uh, that's, I think, a way for us to emerge from this current crisis as a more connected community, as a, as a better society. We've had time to reflect. We've had some very difficult uh, moments through this past year crystallized in, in what, what happened with George Floyd. And, and I think that coming out of this, we should be much more thoughtful in our approach. This is a moment where as we come out of this, we're actively um, supporting new opportunities for communities that haven't had them. That, that would be my hope. I think that's such a great way of framing it, Dax, that uh, economic justice and racial justice are really interlinked. And we often kind of think too narrowly of racial justice as being about representation, uh, about hiring, uh, about numbers. And we forget other really critical aspects, including the economic aspects that, Michael, you've been talking about in terms of the wealth gap. Uh, We've seen greater divisions, uh, greater disparities through this crisis. How, Michael, can we think about narrowing those gaps a little more quickly than uh, markets might do on their own? 
Well, I, I think, you know, we've seen it in a few ways. You know, RBC, as an example, has a program called Access Capital, where we allow companies to invest in uh, bonds and other securities that uh, would help small businesses. It could be to banks, as an example, to free up liquidity so that they can make more loans into uh, the same communities that are the target of, uh, of help. It could be you know, uh, supporting government issue uh, for opportunities in, um, in struggling neighborhoods, you know, et cetera. I also think, though, we have to pay a lot of attention to the fact that not everyone is able to work from home and as safe and as connected as some of the, some of the folks on this particular podcast. And we have to make sure that healthcare, childcare, wage uh, disparities, all of those things are also tended to as well. And you're seeing some of that, but we still have a long way to go. And so I, I think those are some of the, the core places that we have to focus on. And then I, I would say always, and it's always going to be front and center um, as, as a component, uh, which is education. But I think education, not only on things like the economic side on business and support and learning how to be an entrepreneur, et cetera, but I also think we have to spend time on making sure that mental health is also being spoken to about and invested in as well, because there's going to be continued carnage coming out of the pandemic. And I don't, I think we've only seen very small aspects of that. And I, I do worry about what the totality is, uh, particularly for communities that have struggled uh, so, so uh, much and so often. Yeah, those are so, so, such important insights. Uh, the, the vaccines, no matter how successful, don't uh, don't end the problems uh, that we've been talking about. Dax, um, before you go, I wonder if you might shed light on the year ahead and what you most hope to see. Yeah, in, in the year ahead, I'm optimistic that we're going to see uh, more opportunity created for all as we see the, uh, the economies reopen. Given what we've learned, you know, regarding racial justice and and, and other other important social topics and our relationships uh, with one another, the understandings that have been built, uh, that uh, that that reopening can be more equitable. That's a great message, Dax. It's always great to have you on the podcast. I always learn something when I when when I get to talk to you. So thank you. Stay well and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for having me. I wonder, Michael, as we wrap up, how hopeful you're feeling about these challenges and our collective ability to really come to grips with them? You know what? I'm, I'm actually feeling quite hopeful. I do believe in humanity. I believe in the uh, human spirit of engagement. And one of the things that uh, is so important to come out of what we saw in 2020 is just all the engagement, not only about the issues, but also about strategies uh, and tactics in which to solve the problem. We're beginning to get bigger and bigger minds associated with trying to tackle the issues. And people are beginning to really speak up. They're using their voice. They're letting their voice be the latter. I'm sure, uh, John, given that you're quite well-read, you're familiar with the author of the best-selling book, Just Mercy, uh, Brian Stevenson. But he said it best, and I think this is what we're really looking for from people because change comes as a, as a, as a result of, of engagement. He said, somebody has to stand when other people are sitting. Somebody has to speak when other people are quiet. And we're getting that. There are less people that are sitting, and there are a lot less people that are quiet. And that encourages me. 
Those are the perfect words to end on, Michael. Thank you for taking a stand. Thank you for your ongoing leadership. Uh, it's, uh, it's really inspiring, but also essential. Michael, thank you so much for being my co-host for this special episode of Disruptors. Thank you for having me. Michael Carter is the global head of technology investment banking at RBC Capital Markets. We'd both like to thank our special guest, Dax Da Silva, the CEO of Lightspeed, I'd also like to thank Tamar Huggins-Grant from TechSpark Canada. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Tune in next time, and the time beyond that, for our two-part series on creativity and why it's the it skill in the coming recovery. Talk to you soon. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.